Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes and my guest today is Claire Coder. Claire Coder is a writer and musician. She reviews books for publications including The Guardian and the TLS, specialising in books from and about East Asia. Her essay Portraits about her experiences growing up mixed race also features in East Side Voices, essays celebrating East and Southeast Asian identity in Britain, edited by Helena Lee and published by Scepter. As a violinist, she has played with Jessie Ware, Pete Tong, the London Contemporary Orchestra, and on various film soundtracks, including The Two Popes and The Matrix Resurrections. Uh, welcome to our shelves, Claire. It's such a lovely pleasure to have you here today. And what a fascinating bio you have, all these kind of different different strings to your bow, if I'm going to use a sort of uh, musical term. Um, but I think maybe we'll get to talk a little bit more about music later in the show. But to begin with, I want to ask you a little bit about your debut novel, Woman Eating, which is published this month by Virago. It's out this week, so some of our listeners might have had a chance to pick it up already, but a lot of them won't have already already. So could you tell us a little bit about this novel, please? So Woman Eating is about Lydia, and she is a young, uh, mixed race vampire. I always pause at vampire because I feel like uh, people get a certain kind of idea in their heads yeah. when they hear the word vampire. Um, and I usually try to save it to the end of the description. But yeah. <laughs> um, she is a vampire and she um, is trying to kind of make her way as an artist in the contemporary art world in London. Um, but most of the book is is about food, really, um, and about her, I guess, exploring her cultural identity through food let's go back to the vampire bit because it is really fascinating it's such a, i mean vampires are such a kind of there's such an interesting motif in literature obviously through the years and this kind of new your presentation of lydia and her sort of vampiric qualities and her she has a sort of real push and pull relationship with her sort of natural tendencies towards her sort of bloodlust let's put it that way it's not the kind of classic very gory vampire story in many ways it's a story about hunger but it's a story about being hungry for things that you both know and things that you don't know right mm-hmm. yeah um yeah so it's it's definitely not 
a normal vampire book um and yeah I kind of the fact that she's a vampire was always kind of incidental um Mm -hmm. even though I knew from the beginning that she was going to be a vampire um it was always a kind of uh tool I guess to explore um certain things about being human that was interested in Mm. um have you always been quite interested in vampires as a sort of literary um figures or is this a is this a kind of you know is it something that's kind of sat in you for quite a while and you've been intrigued and thinking how can I do something with this or like you say did it come kind of late in the storytelling process and thinking you know this would be an interesting element to add to the text or a way of exploring certain human issues but through a different Um, prism I feel like I shouldn't say this but I have never read a vampire book really including Dracula that is fascinating (laughs) is that on purpose or did you decide to stay clear of them once you knew you were going to write about a vampire because you didn't want that sort of to see I did that too yeah but I'd say it was never something that I was kind of drawn to Mm. um the books I read mostly are from East Asia yeah um and I think um there's like a kind of tradition in Japanese literature and also Korean literature um and and actually in the literature of a lot of uh Asian countries um of kind of having a supernatural element or a supernatural kind of figure Mm. um be that like a ghost or um obviously in Japanese literature you've got yokai um and it not kind of defining the genre of the book um and that's kind of how I approached writing this book I didn't I didn't ever think oh I want I want to write a vampire book or a horror or anything like that um it was more I guess I was kind of um following in that tradition the kind of more Asian tradition that's really fascinating and that also brings us to kind of uh, I think our first question here on the nightstand because you're going to tell me about two books that are currently on your bedside table the first one is a work of fiction isn't it called where the wild ladies are could you tell us a bit about this book who's it by why it intrigued you it's such a good book so it's by Matsuda Aoko He's a Japanese writer and it's it's translated by Polly Barton. It's a collection of stories that kind of interlock. Each story is based on a kind of like traditional folktale from Japan, but um, they've all been retold um, through a feminist lens. So, yeah, it's an amazing book. It's about ghosts and, I guess, monsters in a Mm -hmm. sense, but... It's definitely not a horror. You can't really define it by those things. It's very much, it's about kind of being a woman in society, basically. It sounds very much like exactly like what you were describing just now in terms of these books that take what perhaps kind of traditionally Western readers would think of as kind of tropes of horror or we would like to kind of put these books into a particular genre but actually what you're saying is that in a different kind of cultural context these are very different ways of approaching these and very different ways of using monsters and ghosts and sort of you know whether they're monsters ghosts or vampires right and so you're writing into this a similar tradition yeah exactly in japan you have 
say, for instance, uh, Mishima. Mm. Um, he actually, I this is like maybe a year before I wrote Woman Eating, I reviewed Life for Sale. It's about a man who basically decides to put an advert in the paper, kind of like selling his life, like saying like, you can use my life for whatever you want. Like, it doesn't matter if I die, I'm selling it. The whole novel is him kind of um, being bought by various people. One of the people that buys him is the son of a woman who is a vampire. Mm. So there's there's a vampire in this novel by Mishima. Again, it's like, it's not what defines it. It doesn't get pigeonholed as like supernatural even. It's just, it's just another novel by Mishima. And yeah, I really, I really like that kind of lack of boundaries, the way that that means that you can just kind of dip into these things that in the West we would consider like different genres. Really fascinating and a completely different way of sort of attuning our someone like myself who's maybe not so used to reading these kind of novels or to attune myself to a completely different way of, of reading them and kind of taking them in and, and, and what to and yeah. what to get from them I, I'm I'm very intrigued by this where the wild ladies are now I think I'm gonna have to get a copy now you've sold it to me so much it's, it's so amazing yeah I I even I like struggled to talk about it because it's so good <laughs> that's like the best thing you can say about a novel I struggle to even talk it's just it's too brilliant it's too brilliant it's really amazing and and it didn't really get the amount of attention I feel like it deserves and I think Mm. like a lot of the time there's like one big Japanese novel that is like a bestseller in the UK and I think at the time it was convenience store woman ah okay so and I was like there wasn't like enough space yeah her to exist as well um but it's just it's amazing it's so good it's well if listeners liked convenience store woman or even if they didn't like go out and get a copy of where the wild ladies are and then you can see what uh, what else <laughs> is out there um and the second book you're going to tell us about is something completely different really isn't it yeah yeah so it's the korean vegan cookbook Tell me about this. Are you someone who reads cookbooks in bed in that sort of food <laughs> way that people love doing? I've never done it myself, but I know people love doing it. I think I wouldn't be able to sleep. I'd be too hungry. But so the thing that I really like about um, this book is that it kind of came out of social media. The book is so different to her social media posts. Is that how you first came across her, that you knew her via social media and then got the book afterward yeah so while I was writing women eating a big part of the process was kind of like trying to understand what Lydia's experience of food might be mm. um, and if she's a vampire she can't eat uh, food obviously she's blood a lot of how she kind of um, engages with like food culture is through Instagram and YouTube by watching like what I eat in a day videos, uh, also watching videos by influencers who are kind of exploring their Asian identity through food. Um, and the Korean vegan really interested me. And this was quite a long time ago. It was 2020. She'd been doing her videos for, I don't know how long it had been, but they, they had a different format to what they have now. Now she's usually in the video. Hmm. Um, but back then it was these beautiful videos of just dishes being cooked kind of like bird's eye view um, and then she'd narrate them 
tell these stories about kind of her cultural heritage, her like relationship to her Korean heritage and her family, like stories about her mom coming to America from North Korea. And it's just, oh, it's so beautiful just watching like this dish come together and hearing about like you know, stories about her dad and their relationship mm. and stuff. It was, yeah, really, really lovely. And Lydia, as someone who can't explore her heritage through food, I feel like she gets a lot from watching those kinds of videos where people are exploring their heritage through food. But the Korean vegan was interesting in particular because she's vegan. And there's a video that is in the book actually where she talks about um, the first time she became vegan and how she was worried that she wouldn't be seen as Korean mm. because she was cutting out this huge part of Korean cuisine. Yeah. That I found really interesting because obviously with Lydia, she doesn't have access to any food. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really fascinating idea, isn't it? That how do you lay claim to a certain aspect of your identity yeah. if part of that identity is kind of out of bounds to you, right? Yeah. And, and you can't enjoy and partake in it. It's a fascinating but, way of thinking about it. And it's like, does that mean that she's less Japanese, mm. less Malaysian, less English? Um, those are the kinds of questions that I think she worries about. But yeah, then the Korean vegan, uh, Joanne Molinaro, released this cookbook. And it's just a really beautiful kind of collection of yeah, home, home-cooked meals. And does she sort of tell the stories about her heritage and sort of culture through in the cookbook as much as on the, the video? Not as much. Okay. Not as much. Yeah, I kind of see it as like a companion to her... <laughs> right Instagram or TikTok but that that in itself is so interesting right because in the past I suppose traditionally cookbooks themselves would have been the sort of the final result of mm. you know that would be the thing that you would put together but the idea that it can be a sort of companion piece to something that lives yeah. more perhaps online and like you say you were much more attracted initially at least to the sort of story she told around about around the cuisine and around um her sort of the, the cultural kind of context of it um mm. that it doesn't quite translate into the book into the same way you sort of have to have that mm. visual and kind of you know the the more visceral element on the mm. in the videos i think her voice makes such a big difference as well okay. just actually having her speaking to you while she's cooking that feels like mm. it's just like kind of i don't think she's old enough to be my mom <laughs> <laughs> it feels the same as you know going home and like my mom cooking food from her childhood and her telling me a story about like I don't know her brother or um something from from her past well there is and you do in the novel go into the sort of um almost uh ASMR kind of elements of food mm -hmm. and and you know even though Lydia can't taste it she can she's very attuned I think to the way that things kind of look and smell and sound mm. because maybe that I suppose that's the way that she has to experience it in you know differently to other people but I guess so much I'm kind of fascinated by those video those cooking videos that really take that to the furthest degree and all the chop the sounds <laughs> of chopping and the sort of and the sizzle of things going to the pan and it's true that it, it kind of you know I guess because we're so trained to think you know you hear that sort of happening in the kitchen mm. and you start salivating and you know you want to eat something but it's really fascinating what sort of sound can do without even the taste element right yeah definitely um I mean I I love like kitchens 
Mm. <laughs> I just love being in kitchens um, and the sounds of people cooking. I find it really comforting and I like cooking myself as well. So next up, Claire, you're going to tell me about a recent song that's been on your mind. Yeah, that's Turn Away by Laura Moody, who is a singer, songwriter and cellist. She's amazing. I watched a video of this when you told me this is what you were going to talk about. But I was so fascinated in the way that she uses her cello as a sort of instrument. She kind of taps on it in different ways as well as playing it. It wasn't what I was expecting from a sort of traditional song. Yeah. For listeners who don't know this particular song, can you maybe explain it in slightly more eloquent terms than me? <laughs> Try. It's Laura, basically, she she uses her cello kind of like a, a percussion instrument right but it's it's not just that either there's because that sounds really violent but it's very tender mm. at the same time she uses her voice in a really unusual way too and it's almost like she's using her body as an instrument right as well she does a lot of really interesting things with her her voice like there's a part where she's kind of like it's almost like a scream but very quiet it's like a whispered scream mm. the thing I like about Laura's music is it's it's very I say it's quite wild and quite kind of animal mm. and yet her voice is also really feminine it's tender and it can be really delicate as well but at the same time it can be really kind of dark and almost unstable I found there were certain moments in it that were really sort of raw that would be the yeah. way I would describe it that they just mm -hmm. sort of she was doing she'd do one thing with her voice that I was sort of expecting and then a sound that I really couldn't a wasn't expecting to hear but b couldn't quite work out where it had come from in her body yeah. even right mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> it was like nothing I'd heard I was really taken aback by it and mm -hmm. Yeah, very surprised. Is she, is this something that a lot of musicians are doing or does this really kind of mark her out as somebody uh, doing something different and at their own? I would say, I mean, the cello is interesting as an instrument just because um, the range of the cello is so close to the voice. Okay. But with Laura, there's something very unique to her music, I think. And there's just something very, it sounds really tacky, but like real about it. Like mm. it feels like she's really, she's really open when she's, she's playing her music, I think. And can I take this opportunity to ask you a little bit about your own music? Because you clearly, as I sort of mentioned earlier, you've got these two quite different strands to your career you know your mm -hmm. writing on the one hand and then your music on the other and how do they sort of you know how do you strike the balance between the two how much of your life is spent sort of um devoted to your music how much to your writing like tell me a little bit about that someone asked me this really recently actually about time split between writing and music and I find it really hard to answer I think partly because with music I kind of trained for my whole life okay feels like there's so much time that's been put into it I don't know I find it really hard to compare is it perhaps because music like you say you've trained so much and is it a sort of is it more like a steady bedrock in your life that's sort of always been there for such a long time probably the appreciation that I presume you started playing when you were relatively young if you've you know you're trained to the kind of capabilities that you've got now is that correct mm -hmm. yeah so I started piano when I was four and wow. violin when I was 11 so that's like your whole life has been, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been playing for my whole life. And then that stopped in the pandemic, which was really weird. And actually, that was kind of the context from which Woman Eating was written. 
Oh, really? Because you needed something to do or had you had the idea for the novel for quite a while and was it just finding time to do it? I mean, I've been writing for a long time um, for papers and Mm. I've always been drawn to fiction writing as well. But the pandemic, the first year was quite strange because I think after maybe a month or so, or maybe like a few weeks, I realised that it was like the longest I'd been not playing music with other people. And I was just like a month. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was It was quite, it definitely felt like it wasn't just like losing a job. Mm. It was more like, it was, it's kind of like music's, not exactly like a religion, but like kind of like a God. And it's like, you, like you, it feels that big to lose it. Wow. Yeah. So over the pandemic, I was doing a little bit here and there from home, but it was very different. Like a lot of musicians I know couldn't even like touch their instruments. Really? Yeah, which is really sad. Yeah, it was a really weird time being a musician. I don't think I'd ever thought about the sort of emotional, you know, the obvious element of not being able to earn a living and probably Mm. clearly missing out. And like you say, the kind of strangeness of suddenly not being able to perform with people. But I hadn't considered the sort of emotional intensity or reaction that one might have the sort of not being able to pick up an instrument or feeling, I suppose, a sort of bereavement almost, right, that you'd lost this great part of your life. Yeah, definitely. I mean, music is is a form of communication, so it's kind of like losing your voice or something. But yeah, it was a very strange time to exist as a musician, um, and I felt like only musicians really understood. I'm so fascinated then to know whether writing the novel a different form of creativity but kind of creativity nonetheless and did that fill a sort of gap in you was it how was the experience how did it compare those sort of two different that that I suppose is what I want to know how did the experience of sort of playing this music and being in communication with people that way and then this very silent kind of quite lonely process right of writing the novel until it's out in the world it definitely didn't fill the gap One thing is um, with music is because I freelance, it means I'm doing quite a few like different projects. Say, for instance, if I've been doing sessions for like three days and it's like a film score or something, at the end of those three days, you're done and it's like you leave and then that project kind of gets put out there in the world and Mm. it exists, it's there. Or if it's a gig, you turn up, you play and it's like it exists, It's, it's kind of it's intangible, but it feels very tangible. And there's a sort of sense of completion under it, under each thing, right? Like that it's yeah. you've done it, you've finished, and it's there, right? Exit. And writing is not like that. <laughs> <laughs> or writing a novel is not like that, I imagine. But I think I was kind of craving, I hadn't, I felt like I hadn't done anything over the pandemic because I hadn't been doing these things. And it's not true. I hadn't. Even though you'd written a novel, right? That's most people sat down in the first week of the pandemic and said, I'll write a novel and then just sat on their sofa and (laughs) ate crisps. This is a novel. (laughs) But yeah, the novel in a way filled that gap in a sense. It was filled the urge I have to kind of be putting things out there to be creating things, I guess, basically. Over the pandemic, I did a lot of drawing, but again, it was very quiet. And yeah, I don't know. Nothing really fills the gap of music. And I presume, are you back playing now? Are you back doing? Yeah. And what was that like the first time you went back and played with other people after that break? Um, so actually, um, the Matrix Resurrection soundtrack was one project that we did record over the pandemic. Okay. And the first session um, was 
right before the pandemic I'd say a few weeks before Mm. things like you know got mad um (laughs) and then the second one was it must have been like a year later and it was meant to be much earlier wow um but that was that was my first one back um we did like multiple COVID tests and um had to be distanced in the studio Mm. as well um which was quite strange but yeah it was it was so nice to be back really really nice was it like a sort of inter was it a very intense emotional experience as as much as just a kind of fun seeing people and enjoying doing what you're doing there must have been such a sense of release I suppose after being stuck by oneself I'd say so definitely um I mean I felt that um I don't know whether I'm just a really emotional person for that (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah it was definitely um just I mean I love being in that environment um there's nothing quite like it um but also seeing friends again yeah um so it's kind of like um it was like two things at once music and friends coming back and yeah it was it was really lovely um but the music itself for that film was so hard (laughs) (laughs) um it was really it was I mean it was amazing music but just like it was it's tricky so so there was a lot of kind of like stress <laughs> oh my god that must be the kind of a hot you've got all the intense emotion of coming back seeing people doing it again but also a really hard yeah. work to do at the same time <laughs> sounds incredibly stressful and anxiety you know anxiety making on different levels <laughs> that's great our shells be back in just a moment 
Um, next up, Claire, I'm going to ask you to tell me about a book that has made you think about feminism in a new way. The name of the book is Barbara Hepworth, Writings and Conversations. And it's edited by Sophie Bowness, who I think is her granddaughter. And it's basically a book of it's what it says it is. It's just full of her writings and things that she said and interviews with her. And yeah, it's it's a really, I love this book. I just dip in and out of it. When did you first come across it? Fairly recently, actually. But Barbara Hepworth um, and well, her art has been in my life since I was about four. Um, okay. When my parents took me to... I think it was the Sculpture Park in St. Ives, um, but I don't remember because I was four. <laughs> and what I do remember is my dad, who's an artist, um, basically showing me one of her artworks. So we were kind of standing next to one of her artworks. And um, it was before I really had a concept of what an artwork even was. To me, it was... Um, you know, we could have been standing next to something. It was the same as standing next to a tree or something, you know, mm. was um, just this stone with a hole and the garden through it. And, um, and I've got photos that um, I don't know whether it's my mom who took them or my dad, but it's me peeping through the hole in <laughs> Barbara Hepworth sculpture and yeah, my dad taught me um, kind of about like optical illusions for the first mm. time um, and how she kind of played with like flatness and um, how she framed the landscape and stuff. It was quite a big thing for a four-year-old to learn. It sounds quite intense. <laughs> um, and I remember touching the stone um, and... You know, my dad was touching the stone as well. And um, it was just a really lovely moment. And my dad, at that time, he was quite influenced by her work. Um, so he was doing a lot of carving. Um, he, was doing, he was making a lot of kind of pairs of sculptures, um, which is what Hepworth is known for, her kind of mother and child pieces. Mm. Um, and... Yeah, she, it was never even, I mean, I knew she was a woman, but, you know, my dad never made a point of that. It was just, this is an artist. I really love her. Um, and she's influenced my work. And um, only later did I really kind of get to, sounds weird, but get to know her. <laughs> Uh, and kind of learn about um, her life and her work and what it meant for her to be a woman doing what she was doing, um, in particular um, working with the materials that she was working with, so stone and metal, mm -hmm. bronze in particular. They were considered very masculine. Um, and... Um, yeah, she she explored very she explored motherhood through stone um, and through wood carving um, 
and uh and in this book actually she talks about how all of her sculpture is about love she she's interesting because i think obviously georgia o'keefe is is really well known for being kind of very defiant against being called a woman artist Mm. and i think woman artist is like a really shitty phrase obviously it's ghettoizing it's like it's just and like Georgia O'Keeffe was right, like it led to her work being kind of flattened, perceived in a way that was completely flat. Barbara Hepworth is interesting because she talks a lot in this book about about why femininity is important and why kind of like softness is important. She saw herself as a woman as kind of bringing that to a material that had been, I guess, dominated by men but also seen as something really masculine. So at the same time as she was working uh, during the war, Henry Moore was also making sculptures with holes um, piercing through them. And they were compared all the time, obviously. But Henry Moore's sculptures were, they were very much about like trauma and violence um, during the war. Whereas Barbara Hepworth, um, she saw the, the kind of like piercing of her sculptures is like creating a space, like a refuge. Mm. Um, and they were supposed to be kind of like healing and comforting. And um, yeah, she says something really beautiful. She says, my sculpture has often seemed to me like offering a prayer at moments of great unhappiness. And the unhappiness she's talking about in this case is um, after the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. Um, And I think after Silent Spring was written as well, maybe, because she talks about pollution a little bit. Um, And then she says, in another age, I would simply have carved cathedrals, which I think is so beautiful. Wow. Um, Yeah, her work, she really... um, she saw herself very much as a mother mm. um, and um, but she kind of very much controlled the narrative so it wasn't she wasn't kind of reduced in the way a lot of artists are. How did she do that because she was so sort of out, outspoken is maybe too strong a word but because she was so firm in what in, in sort of putting out there what certain things meant to her and why it was important that she worked with these materials and what that you know, the context of that was? I think she did kind of talk a lot about her work. Okay. And it's kind of sad to think that, like, she needed to do that to mm. be treated seriously, to be taken seriously, whereas someone like Henry Moore didn't really need to. Yeah, the sort of wasted time that she had to spend doing that rather than doing the work, I suppose, the kind of ex- the extra effort you have to make in order to have it taken seriously in the same way. She says here that she's constantly plagued by this little woman attitude, that there's a deep prejudice against women in art. But she says after that that there's a misconception that sculpture kind of involves, like she says, muscular brute bashing. That <laughs> 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 it like involves violence basically and like like physical strength. Mm. It was very small physically. And then she says that the sculpture, stone in particular, is not something to be hacked at. So it never surrenders to force. One must seek out the latent form within the stone and then it need only be touched with the chisel and the form will appear. And I think that's just, yeah. That's also a very beautiful way of thinking about the process of making so much art, right? The sort of 
the gentle touch that idea of the only need yeah. to touch with the chisel and then wow you're making me want to read the book I haven't I know a little bit about Hepworth but I haven't read this particular collection and it sounds like it's a it sounds like it's very important and brilliant um thank you very much and last up today then Claire I'm going to ask you to tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you admire and I think you're sticking with another artist for this aren't you Suzanne Valdon a painter from Paris she was born in 1865 to a working class mother and she's a really fascinating woman. So she, as a child, she was known as an opera rat, which at the time basically meant poor kids who hung around outside the opera houses. <laughs> <laughs> and she got into trouble. And what she... What to be an opera rat? Like, <laughs> that sounds like such a cool childhood. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she was quite wild, I think, um, and really struggled with education. She was always kind of seen on the roofs, um, like, yeah, just running around pretending to be an animal. Um, And she did something that I find really fascinating about her um, is when she was a child, she used to go to strangers' funerals and pretend that she was a mourner which I find wow. really fascinating, <laughs> really strange. Um, so she kind of, um, I think that was kind of, it's kind of uh, telling of how the rest of her life went because she she became an artist's model. So she's in um, a lot of paintings she became a model before that I think she was a waitress she was an acrobat for a while she she did so many things she was like a what's it called when you're like the person that cleans the dishes in the restaurant or something wash pot wash or something. oh like the pot boy kind of thing but not yeah the, not the boy yeah, obviously but yeah yeah okay. <laughs> she had a lot of jobs before she was like 12 yeah, she became an artist's model because she had an accident when she was an acrobat, so she could no longer be an acrobat. Yeah, she's in all these paintings that I have a list, actually, so I'm going to tell you some of them. There's one called Hangover, the Drinker, which is by Toulouse-Lautrec. I love this painting of her. Um, she's like, she just, she looks drunk. Mm. <laughs> she is just she looks really grumpy and drunk and she's just in this kind of tavern um and yeah it's it feels like a really kind of candid moment um but yeah she's also in like a lot of Renoir paintings Mm. um like Dancer Bougival yeah she's in a lot of the very like some really famous ones that people would recognize to see right even if they don't remember the names yeah exactly uh Degas as well painted her and the really amazing thing about her was that she learned to paint by watching painters paint her and started painting as well as modeling I mean her paintings are just they're so I love them so much but just like her story as well and how I mean being an artist model at that time it was also expected that those models would sleep with the painters. Yes, and they were kind of looked on as sort of no better than prostitutes, right, by sort of polite society. Yeah, so she kind of like took the opportunity of being a model to learn how to paint, became a painter, 
took later took her sketchbook and I think some paintings to Daigle, mm. um, who obviously she'd modeled for before. She was 22 when she took her drawings to Degas, who was the most successful artist at the time in Montmartre. After he looked at her sketches, he said, you are one of us. Because I presume there weren't a lot of women working in their circles at that point as well. You know, not like women were modeling for them, but they weren't necessarily being accepted as um, peers when it came to their talent and their, you know. Yeah. Wow. And do you remember how, I'd love to know how you first sort of came across her. Was there a particular portrait that took your, captured your attention? Did somebody introduce you to her? Like, do you remember? Um, it was The Hangover, okay. I think, because she just looks so real in it. And there are these, all these other pictures of her, all these other paintings of her. She looks so perfect. Um, and, you know, she's, I don't know whether she ever posed as a goddess or nymph or anything, but they're just very, I mean, a lot of them feel like she's posing as women who look like they're being watched without knowing that they're being watched you know mm-hmm. um and that's actually something i really love about her paintings she paints herself a lot of the time and she's okay. just looking directly at the viewer um wow it's quite intense yeah um, but yeah i i really yeah i love her work um but she also had a relationship, a really brief relationship with Eric Satie, the composer, hmm. um, who almost made it into woman eating, actually. Really? <laughs> um, not as himself, but I was going to have um, at the Otter, the gallery where Lydia interns, I was going to have um, an exhibition about Eric Satie and Suzanne Valdon's relationship. Oh, wow. Um because Sati himself is really strange. Um, he only ate white food, which is really odd. He carried a hammer everywhere he went. Um, it was very odd. The <laughs> <laughs> relationship is, um, yeah, it's really, it's really um, eccentric. How fascinating. Has there been an exhibition where you sort of riffing off a real life exhibition? Or I don't think so. There should be. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like you should curate one. That sounds brilliant. Yeah, they had such an interesting relationship. Like Sati gave her really weird gifts, like a necklace made out of sausages. And he once gave her, which I love and I'd love to do one day, empty paper bag that he said was full of the world's most wonderful smells. Um... <laughs> <laughs> right. Like he's got present giving down to her. Why not? <laughs> But yeah, she she left him, I think, quite suddenly, and he composed his piece, Vexations, which is like a really short piano piece, but you have to repeat it 840 times. People have performed it and got partway through and started like hallucinating and stuff and had to stop. So it has it's a really unusual piece of music. Um, but I love that she had that effect on like on him. Yeah, but they drew each other, and actually, her portrait of Sati is really, it's really um, interesting. He's kind of green-skinned, um, it's a lot of like green and pink, and it's kind of sickly. But yeah, Valadon, her her work is it's so beautiful. There's some um, sketches that she did, or uh, I think they're like 
they must be pencil drawings or maybe etchings they're quite like delicate line drawings of women naked bathing usually um and some of children as well being bathed they look so recent like they could almost have been done by tracy emin they're just so yeah there's there's just i mean they're so candid and it makes a difference that it's not by a male male painter or a male artist you know looking at the the woman who's bathing and then drawing her it makes such a difference that she's kind of drawing herself and other women that she knew but yeah her work is it's i really love it it's so bold and quite intense yeah it, if you look at all of her self portraits you can kind of see her aging and she's always just looking directly at the viewer and it's very real i guess and she's amazing but her son's work is known more than hers i think that that might be changing now well this is a good incentive for all our listeners to go and look at her look her up immediately start looking at some of these uh, portraits and hopefully uh she gain a bit more attention i knew i knew the name but i didn't know that much about her so i'm fascinated now you told me such wonderful stories that's brilliant she's someone who was really known for being a mother and that kind of dominated how she was received rather than her artwork actually kind of being the focus um because yeah her son had quite a troubled life so i think everyone just blamed her for it so she became a part of his narrative she's she's phenomenal thank you so much claire that was really fascinating and thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing such brilliant recommendations and interesting stories with us it was wonderful Thank you so much for having me. It was really lovely to talk. Thank you all for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. And special thanks to today's guest, Claire Coder. And turn in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.